here we are again. Hi there. We're Ch- in the Chat Chat headquarters. We're in the womb. It's like uh, towards the end of the election campaign, we're both losing our minds. In fact, um, we just had a quick discussion about what we were going to talk about in this yeah. pod, and we said we probably need to come straight up with an apology, which is forgive us if we discuss something that we've talked about in the last episode. Straight because... up, I just mentioned a couple of things, and Sales is like, I was like, oh, we've got to talk about that John Ronson podcast, Things Fall Apart, and Sales looks at me and goes, uh, mate, our last episode was called Things Fell Apart. <laughs> got no recollection of that at all it's so good it's really going well um yeah so, no, we're in uh two less than two weeks to go yeah. to the election night to which... the you know no sleep till bedtime all night shenanigans that it will possibly be yeah, yeah. it's I, I mean i keep people of course keep asking me you know what i think is going to happen and all i all i say is i don't know but i just fear it's going to be another six hour broadcast well the thing is yeah. i mean the thing is that there's just moving things in all directions right like so and i couldn't believe you know we're all trained not to read polls and everything but um you know a third a full third of the population saying that they don't want to vote for either major party. It's just like that's a recipe for just very unusual outcomes. Yeah, Um, I mean, it's just, it's impossible to know. I mean, you and I were just talking in the kitchen before about the teal independence and saying normally in an election you anticipate that you have your base and you have your absolutely ruster on Mm. seats that no one barely even pays attention to and then you have um, the elections decided in the middle Mm. among voters who aren't particularly wedded to one party or the other. And this time around it's entirely possible that Morrison might win the middle but the Mm. the Liberals might lose their base seats Mm. Um, and so that fundamentally changes the nature of the Liberal Party, the nature of how we assume and think about Australian politics. Like it's a very, very interesting election. I look forward to padding for hours with you. (laughs) Let's not blow our good material now. (laughs) Through till the hour of 3am when Anthony finally just says either let's just call the whole thing off or, you know, I think it'll be a minority eight-part government made out of chewing gum and (laughs) pipe cleaners. Can I just share a little bit of um, something about Anthony Green? (laughs) Just because I think people at home probably are in awe of Anthony Green and the way that he, you know, wrangles his numbers and all the rest of it. And... I also am an or an Anthony of Green with Anthony Green and the way that he does things. And I, I, so I first met Anthony Green when I was 20, what age have I been? Four, five, maybe, mm. um, covering the New South Wales state yep. election. And mm. I was like, you know, the total junior burger state election yep. reporter. And so the panel was Kerry O'Brien and Anthony and Quentin Dempster. And then I had a little side panel interviewing state politicians and, Anthony Green was as respectful and helpful of me on that day as he is nearly 30 yeah. years later when I'm anchoring the entire thing. He, he bends over backwards to assist you understanding what you need to yep. know and to give you, you know, you and I were the other day being kind of Neanderthals and saying, we, Anthony, can we have a hard copy of this? We just don't want to look at it online. We need an actual piece of paper. He was like, yep, fine, it's all <laughs> sorted. Like he's just, he's very helpful and he excellent. He compiles the Anthony Green Bible, which is like an account of all electorates. It is almost orgasmically detailed. Yeah, and, it it's, is, and um, just, it's written, he's an excellent, clear thinker yeah. and writer. Yeah. And so it, it's, it's laid out beautifully. The font's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it's a incredible layout. Couldn't but speak higher of the bit. Yeah. I mean, I first met him when I was about the same age too, but even more remarkably, like I worked for the competition, like I worked for the advertiser and in 1997, I think there was a state 
election and it was and I was the absolute junior burger on the um, advertiser local political um, uh, team but um, I became all obsessed with what was going to happen in the upper, upper house because I thought that there was a possibility that this weird anti-pokies campaigner called Nick Xenophon who had done all of these tiny little deals with minor parties like his might actually get elected so I sat down with all of these preference sheets and you know um and I rang him this is after the election he took the call talked me through it like we had a big long conversation about he had absolutely no reason to be courteous to me but he really was and I've always I mean, respected his brain from afar, but, like, he's a highly kind and um, mm. helpful person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he doesn't... He's, and he's great on television. He I is. I love it when he gets stressed out. Oh, he's so watchable. And mm. it's that kind of... Uh, on the night, the producer will come in my ear and go, Anthony, can you go to Anthony? He wants to say something. Oh, I love and it. you can almost see Anthony, like, bursting yeah. out of my peripheral vision. He's, like, a little sort of, like, you he's, know... He's seen something or yeah. he's got something. And it's like... Yeah. It's, he's like a chicken that's laid an egg. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. we know how chickens, when they lay eggs, they get all, like, woo He's like yeah, a, he's got. He, he's him. like a little sort of bug that's hopping around and mm. wanting wanting you to go to he him. He needs to be preserved and like just well, you know, have his brain preserved. Funnily enough, and it's come out to be true. After I hosted my first federal election in 2016, Eric Napper, who was then the EP, I said to, to him afterwards, um, "What are we going to do when Anthony wants to retire? Because it's not like well, he's not allowed to viable." <laughs> And uh, I said, I can't do it without Anthony. And he said, oh, you'll be long gone. Anthony will long see you out. And here we sure are. <laughs> He's never been fitter. <laughs> here we are. I'm a broken shell of a woman and Anthony's carrying on. <laughs> um, so it's been a very it's been an interesting time. I'm also filming uh, a new series of Back in Time for Dinner at the same oh, time good, as good. the election. So Excellent. that's been uh, like not at all dissonant. Um, Fantastic. Yes. That's good. And um, we've got to, I haven't turned my mind to it yet, but we do have some Chat 10 live shows coming up. Well, we've got And they the, actually are complex ones. And quite soon, yeah. And quite uh, soon, yeah. yeah. There's June the 24th and 25th at the Enmore and, of course, in this ridiculous folly that we enthusiastically committed to before realising how much goddamn work it would be, um, <laughs> Friday night is the night that's being organised by you in secret from me and Saturday night is the night that's being organised by me in secret from you. So neither of us knows anything about what the other is doing, which is <laughs> extremely restful. Uh, but so there are some tickets left, so jump online, just Google Chat Town Looks 3 um, and more. These and people we'll aren't idiots. They know where to find the tickets, you really. <laughs> and there is a placeholder for Brisbane people. There's a Brisbane show at QPAC on August the 26th. Yeah. 26th of August. I always love the Brisbane show. Yep. Home crowd. Home yep. crowd And we're coming to WA late. September too, so yes. um, and tickets will be available for those in plenty of time. Hey, um, now, you know I told you I was – I can't remember if I'd started or if I told you I was going to start. We, we briefly touched on the West Wing. I knew that you were planning, planning on, on the pod reality. I can't yeah. remember. Okay, so I'm doing She's a thing. I've never with... talked to you about it on the podcast, so, like, if we talked about it, it's probably yeah. – Must get the point. Um, so Aaron Sorkin, the writer of the West Wing, I'm doing a thing in Vivid Festival Ooh. with interviewing him for and when I looked Fantastic. at his list of programs, strangely enough, I've watched quite a few of his films, like A Few Good Men, yeah. um, Social Network, yeah. and I hadn't watched some of his biggest TV shows, including Had The West Wing. Had you not watched The West Wing? No, I'd seen like bits of The West Wing, wow. but not the whole West Wing. So I started watching it, season one, um, <gasps> and I found it kind of, 
underwhelming, which is, I think, right. why I didn't watch it the first... Oh, partly I was living in Washington and it felt a bit like, oh, oh it's yeah. just more of the same of work every day. But also it didn't overly grab me. Anyway, Justin, um, my old boss, well, now my real boss, um, said to me, oh, you've got to persevere. It really picks up in season two, season three. Like, just if you, if you want, just dump season one now, just go to episode one, season two. You, right. you, you know enough yeah. that you'll be fine. Oh, my God, the jump in quality out yeah. of the blue yeah. from what the hell? I don't want to – I mean, I feel like actually I am going to use spoilers because if you haven't seen West Wing 20 years on, we'll, you know, <laughs> buy beware. Um, so season one, episode – season two, episode one, opens with the president being shot. Um, what? <laughs> oh, my God, it was such a good piece of TV. Mm. And also they then go into – it's it's kind of a – they're having flashbacks the whole way through going into people's backstories as to how these people came to be the president's yeah, team. Yeah. It, it actually, to me, almost felt like it should have been episode one, season one. Yeah. Well, I, I, I can't remember. I, I remember absolutely finding it more gripping as I went through it. Um, but I think that happens a lot with, with series, you know, where you've got the first series yeah. that's kind of like, it's sort of finding okay, but it's just, yeah. Because I think... I feel like that about Veep. I didn't love Veep straight away. Right. But now it's just, I absolutely adore it. Um, right. And I've been re-watching that recently as well. And did know. you start from season one? Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. So, oh, are you kidding? Like it's Armando in yeah. Of course I started as soon as it was available. But like I kind of, I didn't watch the first episode and just think, oh, my God, this is genius. And then now when but you're then, doing the rewatch, does season one strike you as not as fully formed yep, as the others? Correct. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, I, it, I mean, it all makes obvious sense. And Succession sense, right? I felt the same way about. Like, oh, Succession, definitely. Succession I got to about episode seven of the first series. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. And then with that big wedding where this incredible thing happens, then I'm like, Wow, yeah. now I'm yeah. paying attention. I yeah. say to everyone about Succession, yeah. it hits a lull between about episode four and episode seven or eight of season one, and yeah. you've got to push through because the payoff is fantastic if you can just push through. But, um, yeah, it, it definitely does hit, hit a slide. Do you know one of the few things I've seen where I think it was fully realised from episode one, season one, is The Sopranos. Oh, right. And I've yeah. rewatched it many times. <laughs> of course you have. <laughs> and um, it, it's almost shocking how... If you watched, say, the final episode of, I think it's season six or seven, and you went, then you went back to season one, yeah, it doesn't feel like a different show. It feels like the same people, but that they've kind of evolved. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's really which is an incredible of, thing to achieve, really, yeah. isn't it? it? Makes me wonder how because it's more natural to think that a show hasn't quite landed, and then like West Wing season one. The Josh Lyman character, yeah, Lyman, yeah. Um, he has a woman who's an assistant called Donna and there's this other woman who's kind of a consultant who's been brought in yeah. with dark hair, I forget her name, but she's... Um, Mary Mandy. Um, Parker or... Oh, no, no oh, Mandy, yes, of course, Mandy. Mandy. And I think that they... She disappears. Yeah. I suspect <laughs> that they brought in Mandy, I think, to have maybe a kind of screwball, 50s romantic comedy kind of vibe between yeah. her and Josh yeah. and, and maybe a bit of chemistry because they were former lovers yes but then i reckon what they've realized as it started it's all donna it's all donna i reckon they've realized oh we've got we've doubled up on a character Mm. because that function's being fulfilled by donna and so we don't need two of the same character but i guess you don't learn that until you see how the chemistry works right and when you realize what you've got then you kind of make 
adjustments. Hashtag Me Too is going to change the way people view scripts because these days you probably would feel like, oh, we better not make the, his secretary the love interest. Hashtag Me Too. Like, I don't think he'd be able to write write it like that. Yeah, well, there goes the whole series of moonlighting. It goes, yeah, <laughs> it goes like just about every, <laughs> everyone meets everyone at work. That's how it <laughs> It's very... Oh, God. X-Files. <laughs> problematic. Look, like, I remember when I first watched... West Wing. I was living in Canberra and um, I used to watch it in a kind of like little, we had a little club of um, staffers and journos who would watch it. I think maybe it was the only journo. There was like, but it was funny because there was like a, there was a labour person and a liberal person and a sort of a person who ended up going to work for the Lib Dems in the UK. And like, so it was just like this mixture of people and me as a journalist. And one of the things that I noticed at the time was that the staffers had more reservations about it than I did. I was like, oh, my God, it's so cool. And they were like, it's not like that. You know, like they were watching their own work effectively being depicted. And I'm like, I don't care, you know. Um, But it wasn't until years and years later when Aaron Sorkin made The Newsroom, which I hated. Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, my God, it does not work like that, you absolute (laughs) tool bag. And I thought, oh, Oh, so that's what, yes. Okay, that is annoying. Maybe I should ask him that. Maybe that should be a question. How often do people in those industries come up to you and go, mate, that's not how it is. Well, I mean, you know, I think sometimes with political staffers, they love the West Wing because it makes them look cooler and sexier than they are. Yeah, sure. Um, But also, you know, there's a bit of like, come on, mate, get your hand off it. Because what does Aaron Sorkin know about how any of that stuff works? (laughs) He's a bloody, you know, kind of... Dripping wet liberal is like when when they all make the speeches on the newsroom. It's just like, oh my god, this is just what you would like people, yeah, you know, I know, on CNN to be like or whatever. Yeah, yeah but anyway. it's depicted as like, well, we're just truth tellers. Yeah, we're just telling the truth to the man. <laughs> anyway, um, I wonder how many people became political staffers in the early two thousands on the strength of. West I would Wing. love to know that. I but bet surely, be yeah, it'd be like yeah. people watching Friday Night Lights and deciding to become, you know. <laughs> college football coaches exactly. I mean I, I did say, that for a while myself so yeah I must say I find the Martin Sheen character pretty insufferable oh yeah yep. he's, he's yep. hard to take um but do you remember yeah. did you ever read that um in the I think it must have been the first Obama campaign I've talked about this on the podcast before so like sorry guys this is just a massive repeat casserole but like um m- um Maureen Dowd wrote, who used to date Aaron Sorkin, OMG, um, wrote a column about how um, one of Obama's big problems was that he didn't have a living, you know, surviving Democratic presidential mentor who would talk to him because, I mean, Clinton obviously was, you know, very cold on Obama, Mark one. Um, And um, so... She was saying that, like, really, you know, what would be great is if Jed Bartlett could you know, drop in <laughs> and give Obama some advice. Because she was just saying, like, the only kind of really ideal Democratic president that the American Democratic voting um, uh, cohort has, has had of late is Jed Bartlett. <laughs> and he is totally um, fictitious. And I think Martin Sheen and um, what's his name who played, not Alan Alda, but... Um, God, I just have got 
What's another actor? He used to be on LA Law, played a presidential candidate late in the piece in the West Wing. Jimmy Smith. Oh, Jimmy Smith, right. Jimmy Smith was doing election events for Barack Obama. Like, it's just like the, the, the kind of the. The line between TV and politics in um, in America is so terrifyingly slender. Yeah. But um, anyway, so Maureen wrote a column. She wrote to Aaron Sorkin and she said, can you please write me a scene that is Jed Bartlett dropping in to give advice to Barack Obama? <laughs> and it is the greatest scene. Like, you oh, know, so it's like it starts with Jed Bart like crunching up the gravel driveway, <laughs> knocking on the door, the door's opened by Barack Obama who says like, you know, oh, sir, I didn't expect to see you. And Jed Butler said, yeah, well, I didn't expect to see you getting owned by the Avon lady. <laughs> it was like in the Sarah Palin era. So oh. it, it was just like, it's hilarious. Oh, it's must have a, a very pleasurable read. Must have a Google of it. Yeah. Um, now, speaking of, non-fantasy American political stuff. Um, Like, it has struck me watching West Wing, you know, if Aaron Sorkin were trying to write a show today, I mean, real-life events have just become so bizarre in American politics that if you dished it up in a script, I reckon people would tell you, oh, you've over it, it's just not realistic, blah, blah, blah. Um, But I read this book about American politics called American Made by a woman called Farrah Stockman, who's with the New York Times. She um, wrote... It was a series in the paper and then it was expanded to a book and it's basically about a factory, a ball bearings factory in, I forget what state, it might be, it's one of those Midwestern American states. Um, And she basically follows through from the day of the announcement that they're going to be moving the factory off-site to Mexico because they can get ball bearings made cheaper there. She follows it through to the factory closure. And so she follows three workers, it's narrative non-fiction, She follows three workers, a woman named Shannon who operates this big piece of machinery, Um, the guy who's the kind of chief union sort of organiser, and then um, a black man who has – he's one of of the workers and he's kind of got a catering business that he runs on the side and he's, Mm -hmm. you know, hoping things kind of come good. And then she follows – so you get their backstory as to how they came to work at this factory And then also, you know, how they feel about their work and then how they're coping as as it prepares to move offshore. Right. And Trump puts this factory on the radar nationally because at some rally he says, like, before he's elected president, you know, well, <coughs> I'm going to stop those things. Out. I'm going to save that factory. And I'm going to da And so it, it kind of goes through, like, you know, how each of them, like even the Democrat is kind of, the reunion organiser is kind of very open to Trump. Mm. And I reckon it is the single thing that I've read that has helped me understand wow. why Trump would have yep. hold an appeal for people. Because yep. I've always looked at Trump and felt like, but you don't make sense. You don't even yeah. speak in proper sentences. What coming? What's coming out of your mouth is complete gibberish. But... It's just when she goes through these people's lives, oh, my God, every every step of their lives has been hard scrabble. So Shannon, the woman who runs the machinery, who I think is in her early 40s, she's a grandmother. Um, her granddaughter has pretty profound special needs and Shannon's son seems a bit of a waster. And so right. Shannon's they live with Shannon <clears throat> and she does most of the caring of the child as well. Okay. Goes and earns all the money. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, it's heavily male dominated, right? So she's had endless sexism that she has to deal with every single day of her life. Um, she married young, domestic violence. It's constant financial dramas. It's constant struggling financially, um, the healthcare situation's really difficult with the granddaughter. 
um, her own health. She can never really be sick if so she doesn't go to work. Mm. You know, she's screwed. Like most American places, you know, her blood you get, pressure is just melting. Oh, just it's, it was. You just wonder how is this woman surviving? And then you know things go wrong and they can't pay bills and the got the union guy at one point has to sell his house and it's just like oh how can things get so hard like it just it was so stressful reading um and but you really care about the characters and she writes it in a really interesting way because she's a mixed race herself Mm -hmm. i think i can't remember her mother's black and her father's white or the other way around and so but she freely says I'm a, like, privileged New York liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she comes to it and sort of makes that baggage clear. She hates Trump, you know. Mm-hmm. But she really – it's such a good example of journalism and I think that, you know, it's this kind of thing's being lost, which is somebody who has opinions and they check their opinions at the door yeah. and then she just approaches it as a straight piece of writing. She yeah. learns how the machinery works that Shannon yeah. operates um, and she just really follows these people around in an open-minded way, trying to understand and trying to portray the reality oh, of their life. Great. It was, I couldn't put it down. It was absolutely fantastic. And then there's the bits where, like, you know, the Mexican workers arrive to yep. be trained yep. on the machines uh-huh. that are going to be dismantled. Oh, and, God. And so the union guy, of course, wants people to boycott doing that yep. but, and, and to strike. But, you know, they're all kind of, you know, Everyone has varying degrees of views about it. Yeah. Shannon, for example, who of course is heartbroken that the plant's going offshore and she doesn't know what she's going to do, feels like, look, we're not going to stop it. I yeah. can't really afford to not have the income. I feel like I might as well train this guy. I actually care about these products that we make. I want them to continue to be made good. Ball bearings are important. They People don't understand how yeah. ball bearings, you know, if, you, if we don't do a good job, it can ruin things and, and make yeah. pieces of equipment unsafe and She's kind of come to love, like she cares for this piece of equipment that she uses really meticulously and it's almost like an actual character. Um, So, yeah, it's a phenomenal read and piece of work and and like all good pieces of journalism, I felt like, wow, you helped me understand something that I didn't really understand very well. It's interesting, isn't it, that like I think one of the keys to Trump's electoral success is like, in a kind of incredibly complicated world, it is. it takes a huge amount of arsiness to pretend that answers are simple. Yeah. And I think people who are overwhelmed by complexity in their own lives can respond really strongly to somebody who says, look, I will stop this happening. Or yeah. I will build that wall or I will do the whatever. Like, to make it simple and make it sound like it can be fixed is just such an incredibly compelling yeah somebody after trump was elected and i can't remember who it was um a writer said of the um election that trump won the problem was that trump voters took him trump seriously but not literally and his critics took him literally but not seriously oh such a beautiful how fantastic yeah. what a fantastic way of explaining it yeah That's it was so the greatest good. distillation oh. of what happened um but yeah I, I actually just remembered when you were talking about that book that i saw a film on a plane um quite recently actually called american factory a documentary and it's um 
I found it absolutely fascinating. Is it the one with the Chinese? Yeah, come in? Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, one, totally. yeah, that that is that was excellent as well. It's not that's not dissimilar to terrain to this, although yeah. it's different. Um, it's a different premise because, like, in this, yeah, it's a different it, premise. Yeah, it, it, this Chinese billionaire buys an old um, yeah. General Motors factory in Ohio, which has gone bust and closed down, and all these people locally have lost their jobs. And this Chinese billionaire comes in and reopens it. But he also has totally different expectations yeah. of how the workers will work. They have um, Chinese supervisors coming in. Yeah, and, like, there's it's a just, culture just, clash. It's a massive culture clash. It, yeah. But it's a really, um, I suspect like that book that you've read, it kind of, it gives you this granular detail about how this factory works. Yeah. And... The role, you know, that the factory even plays in the life of the town. Oh, definitely, and how people, you know, obviously, any workplace when you've worked there a long time, you become invested in of course, the yeah. workplace. Yeah, it was funny. I was thinking about actually watching West Wing last night about work relationships, and it's kind of funny. Like, obviously, in um, West Wing, and this might change, but where I'm up to currently. You're not really seeing, like, I don't know, is Toby married even? Does he have children? Mm. I'm not sure. I know Leo's divorced, but I don't really know. Yeah. Like, I don't know how he knows Jed Bartlett other than yeah. politics. Um, you know, so you know very little, like, Sam Seaborn, how's yeah. the dude that good looking? Not had a couple of wives by now. Like, like don't quite kind of get what all the backstories yeah. are. Who looks after um, Dulé Hill's daughter when he's at work looking after the president? Yeah. <laughs> no, not the daughter, sister. Um and I was thinking about how sometimes you can, I mean, the, the time you spend with people at work is, you know, huge, like as much often as the time you spend with mm. your family because you're there for eight or nine hours a day. Um, but then often you don't have anything to do with those people outside of work. You may mm. not socialise with them. It, it's, you know, kind of, I think, rare that you, you're not rare, but, you know, like for me these days, not common to them befriend someone and then they become my friend outside of work just because everyone's very busy you've got your family you know you're not sort of not like in your 20s when you kind of were making friends you know all over the shop um and just that thing of you know you can be so tightly bonded with people with whom you work in a team yeah and then you know somebody leaves and everyone's like oh well i'm gonna be so sad when that person leaves and then the machine just keeps chugging along the next week and, and you know sort of and then over time, you know, I think some, with some of my colleagues, for example, who were at 7.30 when I started, like Paul Lockyer, who actually died, I think, wow, no one here, me and only one other person mm. even know who Paul Lockyer is on this team now. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're funny relationships. Are you feeling weird about leaving 7.30? <laughs> Look at you in your face. <laughs> that the hole's going to just close oh, over. Yeah, and yeah. No one's going like, to leave sales. Yeah, she? I mean... I guess so. I mean, I, I definitely will on the last day, but I think um, <laughs> because I know it's the right time, I don't feel like I feel sad about that, but not about like I wouldn't change my mind, sure, if you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah. But I think it'll be, you know, some of those people like Mick, the floor manager, and Chris yeah. who does my makeup, I mean, you know, I deal with every single day and get on really well with. And I, I suspect you know, in the evening when it hits kind of 6.30pm, I'm going to be like, oh, God, I feel kind of discombobulated after 11 and a half yeah, years of yeah. being in there to Can't do Can't you that. just get Chris to come around and do your face and get Mick to just, you know, gesticulate <laughs> at you? <laughs> just as a sort of transitional <laughs> Might have phase. to do that. I had a week the other week where both Chris and Mick were away and, um, yeah, it's kind of discombobulating because, like, it's a small unit downstairs in hmm. that area and um, underground like, oh, I feel kind of no phone reception my, my boys so brilliant <laughs> 
Um, look, quick thing before we go, um, uh, and I promise, look, it's 27 uh, <laughs> minutes and 45 seconds, so she's gone, right then, okay, <laughs> right then. I just wanted to say, not long after this podcast was coming out is not only the federal election, but same weekend, Sydney Writers' Festival. Oh, was, yeah. Because, and I've been saying for, haven't I, for you a have, year, it'll have. be that weekend because I'm you signed have. up to do a bunch of sessions at the Sydney Writers' Festival. So that will be the least convenient and most highly stressful weekend for me. And that's why it'll be that weekend. Ding, ding. Absolutely correct. So, are so, you doing all of your sessions still? Um, I was doing one on the Sunday that I'm not doing now. Um, I'm doing the, um, the Sydney Writers' Festival debate at the Town Hall, mm-hmm. which is now going to happen on the Wednesday after the election because okay. we just thought literally on Saturday night who's going to want to come out and you know right. so we've shifted that town hall event that was going to be that night and what's to the, the Wednesday um, it's that words can change your mind so um, okay. I can't even remember which side I'm on I'm so <laughs> discombobulated but there's um, just a heap of really good stuff at the Sydney Writers Festival. I've done a podcast actually with the Sydney Writers Festival artistic director, Michael Williams, where he just enthuses at length about all of his favourite things that are on. So take a listen to that if you want to be walking around and, and getting some ideas if you happen to be in the um, Sydney area. I am very excited about Johan Hari coming or like he's appearing at the festival um, because, as you know, I've been reading his book Stolen Focus. Have we talked about that already? Mm, I don't know. It is a really great piece of work about um, the modern attention span and why we're all doom scrolling and not paying attention and feeling anxious about our dependence on screens and our inability to, you know, um, focus uninterruptedly on something, you know, the way that I feel I was able to 10 years ago, which I, I don't now. Um, I'd spent a lot of time worrying about this. And so reading this book made me just think, oh, my God, it's not just me. It's a very comforting read in that way, as well as being profoundly upsetting about the amount right. of material that currently gets processed by the adult brain compared to the amount of material that that same brain might have been processing 10, 15, 20 years ago. Right. Great, great book. Um, anyway, there's lots of good stuff. And I also wanted to say two more things super quickly. One, thank you to, oh my gosh, so many people sent messages after our oh, um, yeah. last podcast or last book. Well, one, when I was talking about my brother and I just um, am completely touched and overwhelmed by the amount of kindness and support and love from you excellent people. So thank you that it really does and has helped. Um, and I also want to say congratulations to Evelyn Araluen who won the Stella Prize since we last gathered. And I feel like I feel like she's a real chatter hero. So I was very pleased when she um, won that award. Is the Stella for her Prize, can you just... Drop there. Can you... Um, I just... I think I get confused between the Stella and Miles Randall. Is the Stella Prize for supposedly the best book by a female writer? That's right. So in the 10 years before the Stella Prize was created, the Miles Franklin was won nine out of 10 times by a man. And a whole lot of female writers got really ointy about that because, like, the Miles Franklin Prize was actually funded and established by the life savings of Miles Franklin, a woman writer who had to change her name in order to be published, right? She actually committed her life savings to the establishment of this prize. So, like, had any male writer been bothered to do that? No. She did it. And so it became this great prize in Australian literature. 
But anyway, it was being won by men all the time, even though women were the majority of Australian readers and also significant writers. Um, so a bunch of people got together to establish the Stella Prize. Stella was Miles's real name. Oh. And, um, and I think it was established in 2011 or whatever. And it's for a work of fiction or non-fiction, unusual to include non-fiction, but it was a decision that was um, that was urged by Helen Garner and oh. the organisers took up that, um, that um, policy. And the interesting thing is, obviously, not only that the Stella Prize has absolutely supercharged the careers of a bunch of um, female writers um, and now non-binary writers too, it's been expanded, um, but also in the 10 years since Stella was established, the Miles Franklin has been won by women nine out of 10 times. So oh, right. it's actually had, a, I think, a really significant effect. Putting a spotlight on women. But right. on that note, see you later. See ya. <laughs>